This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The Supreme Court recently heard oral arguments in what could be a a very important antitrust case. It involves American Express, the global credit card company. The question being asked in the case is whether companies that are involved in these types of sectors to platform where they gain a benefit from two seemingly opposite sides, just how they should be treated by law. Amex was found guilty by a district court of not allowing its merchants to steer customers to credit cards with lower fees in exchange for a discount on the item that they were purchasing. But this case also could have an important impact on areas like the tech sector. Just think how the same scenario could come up with a place like Amazon or Google, Uber, and others. To take a look at this case, we're joined here in studio by Herbert Hovenkamp, who's a professor with a joint appointment at the University of Penn Law School, as well as the Wharton Business School. He's also a recognized expert in antitrust law. And also joining us on the phone is Jeffrey Manny, who is a founder and executive director of the International Center for Law and Economics, which is based in Portland, Oregon. He's also a distinguished, distinguished fellow at Northwestern University's Law School. Herbert, great seeing you again. Thank, Thank you, sir. You. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Great to have well, you with us. Good to see us. you, Jeff. Jeff Manny, great to have you with yeah, us today. You too, Herb. Thank you so much, and it's great to be here with Herb, and uh, it's a great topic. Thank you. To Thank you both. Um, I guess let's start with, with the, the case itself that uh, was before the Supreme Court, Ohio v. American Express, and the question of whether or not the, the credit card companies are hurting their their merchants. Herbert? Thanks. Um Okay, as Dan pointed out, uh, American Express uh, has a platform that we today call a two-sided market, which means uh, a business, frequently a networked business, that has revenue either plus or minus on two different sides. I mean, kind of the classic example is uh, free TV, over-the-air TV, which is free to customers, to viewers, but uh, it makes its money in advertising. And uh, two-sidedness can make analysis of competitive effects more uh, more complicated. Uh, the particular thing being challenged in this case is uh, American Express's anti-steering rule, which prohibits merchants from giving customers a discount for using a cheaper card. Typically, the cheaper card would be uh, Visa, MasterCard, or Discover, uh, either credit or debit. And as a general matter, American Express charges higher merchant fees than these other cards do. The, the case was originally brought by the U.S. government during the Obama administration. Uh, they lost in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. They won in the district court. They lost in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. The Trump administration decided not to pursue the case at that point. But the state of Ohio did. Uh, they were a co-plaintiff in the case. And so that's why the case today is called Ohio versus American Express. Meanwhile, however, the U.S. government changed its mind and entered the case later on on the side of the, of the, uh, of the, of the plaintiff. Uh, the question whether the anti-steering rules are anti-competitive uh, has been a big problem for both. It was a big problem for both the district court and the circuit court. I think both of them misunderstood important things about this. In particular, I think uh, the appellate court made two pretty important mistakes. One is it uh, recognized as a relevant market a combination 
of the cardholder side and the merchant side. So it put two non-competing products together into a relevant market, which is contrary to everything we know about what the scope of a market is for antitrust. It should be competing goods, not goods that operate in uh, as complements to each other or some other relationship. The second thing the Second Circuit did that I believe was quite problematic is that it required the plaintiff to show both uh, burdens and that offsetting benefits were not enough to offset those burdens. That is, it had to show both, it had to show both the quantity uh, of the uh, harm and also the offsetting quantity of the benefit and show that the harm exceeded the benefit. That's contrary to a long history of antitrust under the rule of reason, which says that we try to avoid balancing those two things whenever possible. And that usually means that the government needs to show the harm, and then the burden of proof shifts to the defendant to show the offsetting uh, benefit. But the Second Circuit didn't follow that, uh, and so now the case is up to the Supreme Court, which can consider those two issues as well as pretty much any other issue it wants to. So, Jeff, what is your reaction to how this case has played out uh, through the lower courts and uh, going up to this point at the Supreme Court? Yeah, well, uh, uh, I think Herb did a great job uh, sort of uh, teeing it up, and and um, I'll, I'll focus in particular on the the two mistakes he pointed to: the relevant market and the uh, the question of burden shifting. And um, and what I I think the two are actually you know, really interrelated. Um, and the the difficulty here is that so Herb's right. Typically, we establish a relevant market by reference to the substitutes for whatever's being sold in that market, and anything that's uh, sufficiently substitutable becomes included in that market. Um, but the, the purpose for which we do that is to determine what the effects of, uh, of some particular questionable conduct is. Uh, you know, and we and we circumscribe where we look, um, in, really in some ways for administrability, because it would be impossible to look sort of economy-wide at all of the effects. And we think they're going to be concentrated in areas where there's competition or surrounding this this uh, relevant product. So we, so we look there. But but what happens with these two-sided markets is that uh, the effect in the market, and and by effect, we're generally looking at whether the conduct increases prices. Um, or and or lowers quality and 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 really fundamentally restricts output, restricts the amount of transactions in that market. And the problem with the two-sided market is that the price for the good that's being sold, in this case, it's let's say it's called credit card network services. The 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 price that's being for the good that's being sold um, is not limited to the price that the card the card networks charge to merchants. There's a sort of a negative price that is um, that is interrelated with that price. That is, it is part of the pricing strategy by the credit card markets that is, you know, charged or in this case benefited to uh, consumers who hold the cards in the form of rewards, um, uh, so occasional discounts, um, uh, other ancillary benefits like uh, car insurance, you know, right. all the things that come with your your card. And um, my contention would, would be that looking only at the explicit price that's charged to a merchant in exchange for accepting and then processing the card transaction 
um, is insufficient to, to tell you what the actual price in the market is and that you actually have to look at the, again, the ne- generally negative price that's being charged um, to consumers at the same time. Herbert? Uh, that's true, but I don't think it's a reason for uh, ab- abolishing our generally accepted definition of a relevant market because lots of practices have offsetting benefits and complementary markets or collateral markets. Uh, and what we do is we try to assess the benefits or burdens in one market and then look at the benefits or burdens in, the, in, uh, in, a, in a second market. In this case, I don't think there were any real benefits in the offsetting market. Uh, the customers uh, were absent the steering rule. The customers would be offered the option of paying a lower price in exchange for using a different card. That means that the customer had already discounted the value of these Amex benefits. So, for example, right. if if uh, he bought a big screen TV, uh, the uh, Amex fee would have been $30 to the merchant and the Visa fee would have been $20. The merchant might say, well, I'll give you a $5 discount uh, in exchange for using a Visa card rather than an Amex card. Okay, well, then that means that that customer, who we assume is a relevant, uh, a, a rational actor, has already made the calculation that the price discount is worth more than the foregone benefits, or else he wouldn't have agreed to it. He wouldn't have accepted steering and would have stayed with the uh, American American Express card. So I don't believe there are any offsetting benefits worth measuring. Even if they were, they're not, they're not really benefits. They're only a reassignment of a resource from one network to a different network. That is to say, we'd be talking about uh, a, a transaction that went either through the American Express network or through the Visa network. Uh, and basically what the no steering rule did is it prevented customers from opting for the lower cost network. Uh, and incidentally, I think that's also why we can infer that there was an output increase, I mean, an output decrease from mm-hmm. MX's practice. Uh, we rarely measure output effects directly, in fact, almost never, uh, but we do usually infer them from higher prices. Uh, and so in this case, the overall effect of the no steering rule was uh, to prevent customers from shifting their purchase to a lower cost network. And we presume that as the network costs of using cards go down, output would go up. Jeff? Except, except you see, so the problem, the, the difficulty here, and, and, uh, and it really is a fascinating case for, for, for assessing this, is that the, the decision to uh, carry a card in the first place and, and absent some sort of limitation on, on uh, merchants intervening, the decision whether to use a card or not is, uh, is okay. the consumers alone. And um, the, I, I think it's, so... If what Herb said were to kind of play out, it seems to me that the way it would have to play out is um, sort of actually kind of what we'd expect, which is um, if Amex is consistently charging the merchants too much for uh, transactions made with an Amex card, the merchants have a choice not to accept Amex cards in the first place. And, um, and, and nothing in this case and nothing in the analysis here changes their, uh, their choice whether or not to accept Amex cards. But 
when they accept the Amex card, they also accept some some terms of that obligation. And one of them is that they can't steer people to other cards. So, right. so just like Herb said, they make that choice uh, in in full knowledge of those those limitations. And and they obviously see a benefit to accepting Amex cards ex ante. They understand that for some reason, uh, having the ability to to uh, allow consumers the choice to use an Amex card in their store will benefit them. And the reason I, that these sort of anti-steering provisions are adopted by the networks in the first place is because there is a um, <clears throat> there's a strategic uh, uh, problem that they're trying to solve, which is the system itself is benefited by more people, more merchants accepting Amex cards and, and more consumers using Amex cards. And merchants understand that, which is why a great number of them, but certainly not all, accept Amex cards despite the higher price. If every merchant then had the ability to sort of defect from this regime ex post at the time that uh, they're faced with a particular transaction and their individualized assessment of whether in that instance it would benefit them to accept the card or not, the potential is that the whole thing breaks down, that even though the, everyone, every merchant on, on balance, ex-ante, benefits from wide acceptance of the card and even their own acceptance of the card, if each of them could then effectively say, well, in this instance, we don't want the card, or as is the case with the, the particular provisions at issue here, um, uh, deter consumers from using the cards, even though they probably can't prevent them from doing so. Uh, I believe that Amex would say, well, our, the concern is that, <clears throat> that we need the benefit of those transactions that uh, the merchant may not particularly like, um, but that, that yield sufficient benefits to us, sufficient profit to us, that we can offer the rewards and the other benefits to consumers on the other side of the, car, of the, the, uh, the market in order to be able to offer the platform in the first place. And if, again, systematically, merchants could could avoid entering into transactions in particular instances where they don't think where they think it would cost them too much i believe you know, amex would would say well that would make it infeasible for us to maintain our platform and and there would be your output restriction you would you would in theory have only competition around uh, around price you would have right. you would have cards that are being offered with fewer benefits, fewer sort of back-end benefits to the consumers in order to induce them to hold the card and use the card. And the only competition would be a around what kind of uh, effect use of the card might have on the price of the good that's being purchased at the time it's being purchased. We don't know for sure, I think, whether that would be net output increasing or decreasing, but there's certainly a pretty pretty clear story, I think, why it could very well uh, be output decreasing, and why the anti-steering rules could actually be a net benefit to the to the system as a whole. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, joined uh, by Herbert Hobenkamp of uh, the Wharton School and the University of Pennsylvania Law School here in studio, and also by Jeffrey Manny, who is a founder and executive director of the International Center for Law and Economics. Uh, now, as part of, of this case coming forward, Jeff, uh, various tech companies filed briefs in support of American Express, and that kind of goes to the other part of this story, uh, where there could be impact on because of this ruling on companies like Amazon and Google and Uber moving forward. Right. So I, I think the I think the fear is 
if you only look at uh, one side of these these two-sided markets, if you only look at, at what I would characterize as a sort of a part of the transaction, there's a risk that you will see um, what looks like prima facie anti-competitive harm, whether that's in the form of high prices um, uh, without increasing output or, or uh, some kind of a restraint that looks in our um, – uh, that when we've looked at it before, uh, looks problematic – uh, because it constricts choice or something like that, like in this case. Um, and the fear is, I think, for these companies that you know they're they're charging prices on one side of their markets, uh, say to advertisers, and they're giving away. They're using that to subsidize the creation and maintenance of the product itself, um, which they then give away to consumers on the other side. And I think their concern, I think it's a valid concern, is if we're only looking at a part of that transaction. Uh, courts might be inclined to see super competitive pricing in one instance or potentially predatory pricing in the other instance, um, where if they looked at the thing holistically, they would realize that this is actually an efficient pricing scheme overall, even though, again, if you looked at it in isolation, um, they, they might be able to find some, some, problem, some problems. And so I, I think that's, that's probably what they're, uh, why they're interested in this case, because I think that's an implication of the district court's approach to this case, and I think that's exactly what the Second Circuit uh, was uh, was uh, uh, refuting or was refusing to, to adopt. Well, I, I don't think anybody, including the government, believes that the offsetting benefits are irrelevant. The question is, how do they have to be proven and who has the burden of proving them? Uh, in this case, I think the government can easily show that cardholders on a per-transaction basis are worse off because they're denied the opportunity to make an efficient transaction. Clearly, the merchants accepting the cards are worse off because they're forced to stick with American Express rather than a lower-cost uh, lower alternative. Uh, there's no Why are the consumers worse off? Because they're denied that. the opportunity to make an efficient bargain, right? If I if I'm if if I'm offered a five dollar reduction in the price in exchange for not using the Amex, then I have a chance to weigh the costs and benefits of using the Amex and getting the perks against the discount. And if I accept the discount, that means I place a higher value on it. So steering the that, that restraint. The, st the steering wheel only has bite in circumstances where the customer would switch. So you have to assume right. the cardholders are, on a per-transaction basis, are, are worse off. Uh, but now, if, that were a, if that were prima facie evidence of, of anti-competitive conduct, um, it, would, it would condemn, I, I think, uh, a lot of, of apparent restraints that we think are pretty pro-competitive in the markets. I think one, of, one example, uh, maybe not perfect, but that was raised at oral argument before the Supreme Court was a car dealer uh, that, uh, that only sells Mercedes and refuses to sell Kias or, or the reverse. In some sense, the consumer doesn't get the choice when he goes to that car dealer to, to buy any type of car he wants. But I think we all recognize that that a car dealer uh, and a sorry, that a dealership and a manufacturer that enter into a, an exclusive agreement that the dealer will only sell the Mercedes is is on net uh, 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 competition enhancing and, and is and yeah. But in this case, the, the dealer is not the one. The, in, the dealer is not the one imposing the restraint. The dealers, the dealer would prefer to use the lower price card. 
uh, it's Amex that prohibits it from, from doing that. But my argument is simply that once the government had shown the harm to the cardholders, the harm to, ri- to the merchants, the harm to rival card issuers, so there's a lot of harm from three different places, then the government ought to have the power, the, then the defendant should have the right to come forward uh, with any kinds of network efficiencies of the kind you described a, a while ago, which uh, should be American Express's burden because, you know, it's the designer of the rule, and as a result, it's in a much better position to understand whatever benefits it produces. So I'm, I'm not arguing that these offsetting benefits sure. are irrelevant, but only that the antitrust rule of reason, as we have always applied it, is more than up to the task of uh, dealing with it. And the circuit court's rule, which required balancing right out of the box, is going to impose hysterically high administrative costs. Jeff? Do you not think that um, – and uh, and I'm not actually certain of this, so I'm really – this is not a rhetorical question um, – that Philadelphia National Bank, if, you, if you've defined the markets as separate markets, wouldn't uh, uh, strict adherence to Philadelphia National Bank mean that you couldn't enter the uh, evidence of the beneficial effects in this this other market in order just to justify the apparent restraints in the merchant side of the market? We'd have to make an enormous jump, which we've never made, which is to move that no-balancing rule from merger law into Sherman Act law, right? The reason that we don't balance effects in different markets in merger law is because Section 7 of the Clayton Act requires only injury in any section of the country, not net harm across many sections. There's no corresponding language in the the Sherman Act, uh, and as a result, we generally take burdens and benefits uh, and try to deal with them as best we can, usually by requiring the defendant to prove the benefits that are unique to its own rule, because after all, it knows its own business better than the government does. So, Herb, let me let me take this for for the people that are listening to us for a second. Let's give the example of Uber. If you are taking an Uber here in Philadelphia from here at the Penn campus and and going down downtown, and you are in your car, or I'm sorry, you're in that person's car, and you want to make that payment, and you have the option of of doing American Express or Visa. And let's say you bring out your American Express card and that driver says, well, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. if you if you use Visa, I'm going to save, you know, whatever that case may be. Is that what we're talking about here? With Not the really, concern? because okay. in the Uber case, the uh, app, the central authority sets the price. OK. And the merchant cases, the merchant sets the price. OK. I mean, this is actually this is being litigated right now in a case involving Uber, whether right. the drivers ought to be free to set their own prices. Right. But uh, in, in, in Uber and Lyft, as we currently know them, uh, the central administration sets the price and uh, the individual cabbie has no individual driver has no power to deviate from that price, at okay. least not through the through the app. Okay, so how about, Jeff, with the examples of other uh, tech sector companies? Um, 
So I'm sorry. So the well, question is, what, I was what going to say, the, the let's analogous. Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about uh, the impact of this type of a ruling on Amazon or on Google, where are they most concerned in terms of the ruling uh, that could be coming uh, down from the Supreme Court? Um, yeah, so I'm, I, I guess I can't think offhand of uh, a, a an analogous, a, pr- a precisely analogous restraint okay. in one of those markets. Although I'm sure there are some, but. There are certainly other kinds of conducts, other kinds of conduct that would typically be treated the same way that, that could perhaps be questionable. So, so take for example, uh, Amazon's use of uh, uh, Amazon Prime, uh, which um, uh, th- through which uh, consumers are so for, you know consumers pay a little bit and um, they. They get access to a, a sort of a host of, of benefits, and uh, one of these benefits is free shipping. Um, but the free shipping only applies to merchants that have opted into the the Prime program or the ship or uh, 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 service. I can't remember the name of it. The the, am, the the program through which Amazon actually handles their their shipping for them. Uh, so the consumer makes the choice about whether or not he enters into Prime. He's not actually precluded from buying from these other purchasers, but he won't get free shipping if he does. Right. Uh, so uh, the other, the other, the other merchants. Uh, the, sorry, the merchants have to pay to participate in this program. And so I think so. The, if I, if I uh, Herb can correct me if I'm if I'm wrong that this is a sort of analogous example. I think here the concern would be um, that. The uh, if you looked only at the interaction between Amazon and these merchants, it looks like uh, Amazon is perhaps effectively sort of extracting payments from uh, from merchants that are super competitive um, uh, because they foreclose access to this massive part of the market unless the merchants sort of pay a, a, an entry fee and. Um, uh, but but the choice here is is fundamentally made by the uh, by the consumer. He's the one who decides whether or not he's going to uh, enter into the Prime program in the first place. Herb, does that sound like a yeah? A, I think so. An I, I don't. Example? I don't think tech companies, including uh, Google, Amazon, Uber, Lyft, I don't think any of them would really be injured by a well-crafted, <laughs> narrowly written opinion. Uh, basically reversing the Second Circuit uh, and along the lines I suggested earlier. I think the danger with these kinds of cases is that they always go, they frequently go further than they need to go. And mm-hmm. there's always some concern about what that might produce. Uh, but, you know, if, if the case says no more, then you've got to limit market definition to reasonable substitutes, right. and you've got to shift the burden of proof once the government has made a prima facie case of harm. I don't think the tech companies would be uh, would be hurt by that. One important corollary is that you always have to look at all revenue sources. Right. For example, the, the fact that Android right. is a Google product, is free to customers, does not mean that Google is engaged in predatory pricing. It simply means that Google's business model calls for uh, revenue from other sources. So, for example, Android is bundled with Google Search, and Search is bundled with advertising, and that's where Google picks up its its revenue. But, you know, everybody knows that that's kind of the paradigm simple case of two-sided markets, where you got to look at revenue impact on both both sides. And I I don't think... (coughs) 
anything but a very, very incompetent Supreme Court decision would uh, would ignore those kinds of things. Jeff? So, so the, pro- the problem is really, it's really an error cost problem, I think. I think Herb's right that that our, our current system um, could very well often get it right because because the, the defendant does have the ability to, to demonstrate pro-competitive benefits that outweigh the identified harm. Uh, but of course, uh, the very nature of burden shifting is, in fact, to put a thumb on the scale at various points in the in the process. And if you're sort of systematically allowing uh, plaintiffs to to make out their prima facie case on the basis of um, of reference to conduct that properly understood really is is rarely if ever anti-competitive but is only anti-competitive when when viewed in isolation it seems it seems sort of indisputable that you'll you'll end up with more erroneous outcomes um and so it doesn't mean that you'll always get it wrong for the reasons herb said but i but i think you you have to to assume that you're more often you will more often get it wrong and the cost of the litigation will be higher other things that these companies would probably like to avoid. It's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. Thank you both uh, for uh, joining us today. Jeff, thank you for your time. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Thank Good you. to talk to you, Jeff. Thank you. Too, Herb. Thank you, Herb. Always great seeing you. Thank you for coming in. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 